This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. What we saw happen all too often was that IoT is often treated as a technology project, often run by the CIO or by a small business unit or, or factory plant off by themselves. And so the technology was changing, but the actual way of work wasn't. That's McKinsey partner Mark Collins. He's talking about the Internet of Things and a mistake that companies commonly make. They think of IoT purely as a type of technology and not an element of strategy. Mark joins me and McKinsey partner Michael Chewy to talk about how companies can get it right. At the time of this recording, a piece of space junk is about to collide with the moon. And that piece of junk is not the only one out there. Stick around to hear about the surprising implications of space debris in orbit. From Chris Danick, McKinsey associate partner in the aerospace and defense practice. Michael, Mark, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Pleasure to be here. How do you define the Internet of Things? Well, the Internet of Things or IoT is basically, uh, you know, when you embed digital technologies into the physical world, you know, we're seeing digital technologies embedded in cars, in buildings, and you connect those physical objects through digital network connections back to computers. And that simply is it. That's the Internet of Things. We've learned how to do transactions online or in mobile, for instance. People might remember things like called libraries. We've basically digitized the physical world. These things we call A-B testing or experimentation. We can look at how people behave in a store in a way that, you know, otherwise, you know, online we're tracking how they click. I know that McKinsey has published previous research on the technology a while back. And so, Mark, what were some of the more surprising findings or what were the areas where you found great uptake or where the use cases were more prevalent than say in others? When we look at the intersection of what we call settings or physical locations in which IoT is deployed and categories of use cases of 99 individual combinations, we found five represented 52% of the value in 2020. So really big concentrations in terms of where value is created. A second thing I think I personally found very surprising is the massive growth or explosion we've seen in the growth of the connected home. Rewind the clock back to five years ago, on average, the average American house had one connected device in it. We fast forward five years, we now have over five connected devices on average. And this has been borne out of in part, you know, real innovation in technology with smart speakers perhaps leading the way and pulling through other device categories. But also probably, if we're honest, a result of all of us being caught in our homes for the last two years through COVID uh, and investing in the area around us, both to improve, but also to make our lives easier. And so when we look within the connected home, one of the biggest themes or use cases in there is around chore automation. You talked about how five areas in particular accounted for more than half of the value that's being generated. What are the other four areas in which you're seeing this, this activity? Well, so consumer applications is one of our fastest growing, but it's actually not one of the largest as we think about it overall. And so when we look at the largest overall, the, the five combinations that really stood out to us were use cases related to human health in hospital and acute care and residential care settings, also related to operations optimizations. So, you know, how can we really drive greater efficiency, greater efficacy? 
uh, and that was across the settings of factories, cities, and work sites. Uh, and then we also saw a, a real excitement around human productivity in the retail setting to really enhance what the experience can be for shoppers while also enabling companies to optimize both their revenue growth and optimize their cost base. I mean, one of the re- remarkable things is we are seeing companies derive real value from using these uh, technologies, whether it's in the factory, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in the automotive industry, we're seeing more and more cases where you know real value is being created. Curious about one aspect of the consumer applications. It feels to me like one of the larger impediments over the years, impediment to greater adoption is this privacy issue. How did that sort of factor into the results of the research and how can companies help resolve that that tension? No, I mean, I, I think privacy is absolutely a factor as you think about consumer preferences. I think it's one which has increasingly become top in mind as we've seen you know, quite public incidents over the last few years. But also some companies make you know, almost their value proposition based around privacy as they go forward. But what we also see is there is a tension for users because they also want the convenience that many of these IoT devices can bring. And they're seeking to balance these trade-offs as they may exist in their mind between privacy, ease of use, reliability, ease of installation, etc. What impact have you seen IoT have in terms of cities? I mean, cities is a place that's uh, near and dear to my heart as a former municipal CIO. I mean, one of the challenges that we've seen in in a number of large cities around the world is just the amount of traffic congestion in the center cities. And one of the things that we've actually seen in, in a number of different cities is the ability to apply congestion pricing. You can actually track when vehicles are in the center city and you can charge for the times when congestion is highest. That doesn't necessarily make the driver happy about it, but we actually have seen really material changes in the traffic patterns within those cities that have in, in, uh, invested in congestion pricing. And by the way, it can be dynamic. Uh, you know, Again, it only comes into play when actually either congestion has happens or we can detect congestion beginning to increase. And so that's something that, you know, you, you think about a, a city being a more of a, almost like a living organism, it's dynamic, it adjusts. Uh, and that's one way in which IoT can make that happen. Maybe taking the example of the living organism, Michael, I mean, thinking of the world in which we live in very tangibly, I think we're seeing a real trend towards ESG and sustainability right now. And as as someone who lived through the days of orange skies in San Francisco as a result of the fires a few years ago, I think we're seeing real focus now on things like air quality monitoring, water quality monitoring, um, to see what that can do. And I think we're seeing cities intervene on that to deploy sensors to be able to detect. But we're also seeing democratization of that. And we're seeing private individuals place sensors that give a better view of what is the air pollution in, in their region at the time and allows government to think about what are the responses that they want to make to that. And that can feed into you know, very real-time planning decisions on you know, what, what factories are going to be opened where, what hours are said factories going to be open, and how do we think about demand off the back of that. So these are areas that show high promise, high activity. I'm curious if, whether we can turn it on its head and ask the question, what are companies still getting wrong about IoT? I think one of the big findings when we looked back relative to the research of five years ago was that now largely we can say that technology is actually good enough. We've had huge maturation in things like network connectivity, things like battery power, advanced analytics, etc. What we saw happen all too often was that IoT is often treated as a technology project, uh, often run by the CIO uh, or by a small business unit or, or factory plant off by themselves. 
And so the technology was changing, but the actual way of work wasn't. And when we look at, say, some of the lighthouse factories that Michael referenced earlier uh, from the World Economic Forum, we see them really treating it as a holistic operating model transformation. When they really look at how systems and processes are going to change on the factory floor, for example, they think around what are the incentives of the individuals working within that system and how they may need to incentivize them differently. And then to support that, they think about what are the KPIs and reporting that you need to be looking at on a go-for basis. And we find when you bring these, I'll call it operating model factors together with some of the fantastic technology that you have today, you really can produce some pretty magical results. Hey, Mark, as a former CIO, though, you know, the technology leadership is still important. We just need to make sure we have business leadership, too. Completely agree. That's a good point, though, Michael. How should the CIO or how should IT and business be working differently to, to kind of enable IoT uh, initiatives? You know, this is an old story. Uh, in all kinds of business applications of technology, you'd need the business leader to partner closely with the technology leader in order to make this happen. The technology, which Mark says, you know, has advanced a lot. And so you'd need that technology leadership. But as Mark was talking about, if you want business value at the end of the day, you need the business leader also to at least be the co-leader of the effort in order to say, look, here is what we're actually targeting. We're going to target unplanned downtime. We're going to target, uh, you know, inventory management costs. We're we're going to target you know, our employee safety, whatever it is. That's the business result you're going for. The business person will know that better than anyone. Hopefully, the technology people are learning about that at the same time, and the business people are learning about technology. That partnership, which, as Mark says, is often not there to the extent it ought to be, is what really leads to real value at the end of the day. Yeah. And maybe one thing, Michael, to build off that, I think one of the themes that we heard you know, in our client service is that this is often easier in greenfield settings. You know, be it a new factory plant being built from scratch, it's easy to build in the technology and the business outcomes from the start. Or if you're a new IoT company being set up from scratch, where we see this being a challenge is when you're trying to integrate it into legacy or brownfield environments. And that's not just the case of where you factory that's 50 years old that suddenly needs to be connected to the internet for the first time, but it's also in terms of companies that perhaps have traditionally sold unconnected products. How do they now move to a world which is much more software driven, where they want to sell connected products going forward. And there, the integration of you know, business leaders plus technology leaders can produce some pretty stunning results. What role does talent play in either the way that IoT is being adopted, or maybe is it still holding the technology back? I think we see talent playing an absolutely critical role. And it's not just in terms of our core academic disciplines, where there's a huge need for talent like data engineering, data scientists, computer scientists, et cetera, which underpin all of the operations of analytics and IoT. And we also see it in terms of ways of working. We see companies doing really, really well when they're taking, say, a design thinking methodology and working backwards from their customers' needs all the way to through how they deliver it. As we thought about the implications for governments or regulators, one of the key reflections that we had is how do governments and regulators think about turbocharging the talent that is needed to unlock this potential going forward? And that's going to require a whole raft of interventions all the way through from primary and secondary and tertiary education through to, you know, how you think about skill development. Folks who know how to do this, how to implement IoT, capture value from it in a business, uh, are in high demand. Uh, It is one of the bases of competition. And what's interesting, because IoT now is not just a technology industry thing, it is across all industries, you do see you know, auto companies 
vying for the same talent that the tech industry is vying for. What's a typical example of some things that companies get wrong um, when they try to use IoT or somehow implement IoT into their corporate strategies? But we sometimes see with, say, large multinational companies that have global footprints, uh, that there isn't a clear owner of IoT within the organization. And what that leads to is fragmented and decentralized decision making when it comes to IoT. Uh, And I remember an example I was speaking with a colleague about where this company had multiple factories across the globe. And almost every factory had a bespoke application, a bespoke vendor for providing one single discrete use case. Each of them worked well in terms of their individual silos, but when it came to look across the company as a whole, it was next to impossible to get an aggregate view across the entirety of the company. And it made, meant as you thought about scaling those solutions as well, you were structurally limited and almost had to go back to the start and, and re-engineer. So I, I see a real theme around kind of who owns the IoT agenda, particularly for multinational companies, and how are you being thoughtful both in the short term and the long term at a global and a local level as to how you're going to set an agenda and chart forth to capture value. I think we've seen lots of examples where you know people buy a new piece of technology and it sits, it's used for the first week and then sits idle. And it's really through uniting kind of the business side and the technology side and really changing the day-to-day ways of working and importantly, the incentives, you, you get to real change for companies. The classic example I think that Michael and I often talk about is the repairman who, you know, until recently was the hero of the hour when they fixed the repair. Going forward in the world, the hero of the hour will be the person who makes sure the repair never is needed in the first place. And so you need to think totally differently about the KPIs, the incentives, and the performance management of people on a very practical level. Yeah, if I can add another failure mode, even within a factory, even a new factory, a lot of the people who sell equipment into the factory sell connected equipment. And so... You know, you're going to buy this tool from this company. The company says, we have it connected. We'll do predictive maintenance, all that kind of thing. But unless those machines talk to each other, then you're often going to under-optimize the performance of the actual factory. And when we did the analysis, about two-thirds, three-quarters of the value that IoT can unlock requires interoperability. And unless the customer, you know, the factory manager, or, you know, the procurement manager there specifies that that connectivity occurs, that interoperability occurs, then, you know, you'll have their IoT devices that don't talk to each other. I'm not sure if this was covered in the report, but I was thinking about the work that we've done at McKinsey on ecosystems and ecosystem development. And I'm curious what role ecosystems are playing in, in, the, in the changes that you've seen. Is there more collaboration? Are these ecosystems forming? Are they better? Are they bigger? I mean, I I think ecosystems are absolutely critical as we think about the landscape going forward. And maybe to give a very tangible example of this, one of my clients wishes to deploy sensors within their production environment, and they wanted to make sure that those sensors were secure. Making sure those sensors are secure requires everything from how is the individual chipsets secure and have security designed in from the start? How is the network then on which those chipsets communicate information secure? In the servers where that data is, is stored, how do we ensure that they are secure as well? And so it's not possible for any single vendor to quote unquote secure an entire IoT value chain. Rather, we need people who work together to integrate almost each layer of the stack to bring this together. We have seen the emergence of platforms that are you know, at scale that everyone can integrate with. We have not seen that emerge in IoT as of yet. And the emergence of that through an ecosystem play or through some other you know, play is really an unlock that we will be excited about as we look forward. 
if we do this research again in another two to five years, what are some trends that you could imagine developing? We need, for instance, our our factories to be better performing. You know, look at all the supply chain issues that we've had. You know, I'm not saying IoT can solve all of those, but if you have better visibility in your supply chain, if you have the ability to ramp up and down the volumes in your manufacturing, you know, we can have a much more resilient and productive economy. That's one. IoT and, and, and healthcare, which Mark knows very well. Look, we could be healthier. <laughs> we literally can, you know, hopefully manage the next pandemic, which hopefully is a long time away, but, we'll, you know, be able to better understand how public health is doing and how we all individually are doing. Um, hopefully, our homes will become more energy efficient. I'm hopeful all those things will be true. But, you know, it, we've talked a lot about factories. It has been, in some cases, one of those places which ended up being slower growing than we thought back in 2015. At the same time, it is actually the largest uh, potential source of value. It's actually much, much bigger than you know, the home setting. Our colleague who works um, you know, closely with the World Economic Forum says there are 2 million factories. There are a few dozen lighthouses, right? There's so much more work to be done. Maybe, maybe one thing to build off that, uh, Michael. I mean, we, we wrote this, uh, this, this report in the middle of a pandemic, which when you're trying to create a view of the future, is often an interesting time to be doing anything of that sort. But even when I think about the, the start, which was you know, nearly a year and a half ago now to today, if I think about just what the art of the possible is in terms of speed of change in companies, it is just transformatively different. And so in many cases, the world is different now than when we almost started writing this report 18 months ago. I think of one CEO who referred to there being a decade of progress in digital transformation in under 10 months. And so I I think about and I look at many of my clients who are now achieving things at speed that they would never have thought possible in equivalent timeframes before. I also see the ambition levels increasing as they think about what they want to do, how they want to link the physical and digital worlds together, and really making really concerted investments in things like digital twins and others, what not only enable them to be better prepared for the future, but also enable them to capture value and serve their customers better. In order to fulfill this promise, I'm wondering if there's one key takeaway that you would offer business leaders to accelerate their adoption of IoT. I'd say bring all of the innovation that you have in digital to the physical world using IoT. It turns out in order to transform your business, you actually have to do a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it actually, it, you know, it doesn't come down to one thing. And that's what we've actually discovered. And so you really have to, you know, you know, bring the whole playbook if you're going to actually transform using digital. Bring the whole playbook if you're going to transform using IoT. I think I think for me it would be about thinking about how do you start to sell and deliver outcomes versus technology. Right. There was a um, a part in the research where you talk about. The, the phrase that I'm looking at directly here is don't dip your toe in the water. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that, what that looks like if you're an executive and, you know, maybe you're a little bit hesitant. One of the things that doing more things together means is that you force that change. Um, and so in our research consistently that we've done every year, we see those companies that deploy more use cases together in parallel consistently capture more value per individual use case. And that's because you force the rethink around your operating model, your processes, your incentives, and your reporting. And it really serves as an unlock for the company. Mark, what does it look like to be deploying multiple use cases? Multiple use cases may be occurring, but they may be occurring from different perspectives on different systems in different areas. And that's why I think as Michael and I were kind of wrestling with what were the implications for companies in this space, one of the things I think we consistently came back to is, you know, who is the IoT champion within your company? 
who is the person that's going to take on this mantle and lead forward? Because just by the act of appointing someone as the lead, you automatically enable greater coordination, greater visibility, which, as we've seen in our research, gives you a multiplier in terms of the actual outcomes that you get. What role could IoT play in either fostering the metaverse or supporting the metaverse or challenging the metaverse? Well, I mean, first, I, I want to recognize that, in fact, you know, what their metaverse is is something that uh, there are a number of different opinions on. We tend to exclude user interface uh, devices as part of the IoT, but nevertheless, those things, um, you know, from a very practical standpoint, are metaverse related. Thinking about how you can create almost near perfect replicas of things like telecom networks or electricity networks or factory floors, where you can trial and test and get real time feedback. Sensors and IoT devices within these environments are the thing that will provide the information to enable those digital twins to run in real time and think about how you can optimize. And I mean, these deliver benefits, not just in terms of, you know, cost opportunity savings optimization, but think about telecom networks in the face of, you know, mass weather events when, you know, cell towers are, are falling down or falling over. Yeah, because it's pretty cool, right? I mean, if you have a digital twin of a factory and you can go into the factory and simulate what the operators might be able to do, you can start to, you know, train, you can start to optimize all those sorts of things. Before we do the sign-off, is there anything, Michael or Mark, that we that you did want to touch on that we've missed? I mean, one of the other settings that uh, I'm excited about, you know, is in the research, we looked at different physical environments in which these technologies could be deployed. One of them is work sites. Productivity in construction has actually declined slightly over several years, and we badly need to do things like build more housing. And so, you know, the hope is that IoT and other practices always, you know, you couple these management innovations with the technology can actually improve the productivity of things like construction. And that would be incredibly beneficial, not only to our economy, but for, for, for people. I mean, Michael, with you taking the efficiency angle, let maybe me take the efficacy angle for a second. And we, we spoke earlier about, you know, what the impact COVID has had uh, on the deployment of IoT. I mean, w- one area that I think has foundationally changed forever is the provision of healthcare. And if we think about, you know, what IoT now enables, it is transformatively different as we think going forward. And the pandemic, if anything, has reset how we interact with our healthcare providers. I think we're now in a world where the default is now I'll engage with my primary care uh, over UC or over my phone through video conferencing. No longer am I going into a GP surgery. And if you think about what IoT is enabling off the back of that, it's the ability to do diagnostic tests or previously only possible in acute care settings. Now suddenly I can do these with a wearable on on my wrist and be done in 30 seconds. Um, And if I think about the potential for that, not just to improve wellness, but also for patients suffering with acute and chronic diseases, it can make a real difference in terms of both quality of life, but also detecting potential disease or deterioration earlier, prolonging life as well as expanding its quality. This is fascinating stuff. As soon as we get off this call, I'm going to put on my Oculus Quest and think about all the IoT possibilities. And I'll be I'll be thinking about this conversation. Michael, Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for the time. Been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Next up, Space Junk with Chris Danick, McKinsey Associate Partner and Managing Producer Laurel Moglin. At the time of this recording, a piece of space junk is expected to hit our moon. That piece of space trash is not alone. Chris Danick, McKinsey Associate Partner in the Aerospace and Defense Practice, says there are many thousands more in orbit. 
the primary responsibility in that in the U.S. is the U.S. Space Force, tracks about 27,000 pieces of debris. That's 27,000 pieces of debris that are traceable. Chris says those pieces are... Roughly the size of a softball. But what about the number of pieces that aren't traceable? Several hundred thousand pieces, or at at least a a large multiple of the 27,000 is untraceable. What exactly are those thousands of pieces of junk? Well, they consist of a wide variety of things. Space junk starts with pieces of rockets or old satellites that have outlived their usefulness. Everything from things that have fallen off the space station or the space shuttle in the past or other spacecraft. In a few cases where someone has intentionally destroyed a satellite with an anti-satellite weapon, that creates a huge amount of additional junk. You have things like paint flecks. There's even a, a, an astronaut's glove floating around out there. A paint fleck here on Earth is pretty innocent, but in space, it's a projectile that packs a punch. Somewhat notoriously, one of the space shuttles got a chip in one of its windows. It was a noticeable defect in the window uh, when it came back to Earth, but didn't cause any greater damage. Greater damage is a possibility if space pollution increases. There is the potential over the long run that if you have enough pieces of junk in orbit, and they begin to collide with each other, you could have almost a chain reaction. This was um, first theorized by a NASA scientist, but it's called the Kessler syndrome. We haven't quite reached that critical level. In order to avoid getting to that critical level, Chris says there are a few things we can do. Don't create debris intentionally. Improve the mechanisms for removing satellites once they're no longer active and have requirements that enhance the ability to get things out of orbit when they're a problem, when they're dead, literally. There are a couple of entities that are taking an interest in the issue of space junk. The United Nations has taken this on. There are, you know, the U.S., NASA has proposed some standards. I I think it's safe to say there's interest from any spacefaring nation. This is a common problem. The question perhaps is more who is willing to take any sort of action. For now, that action depends mostly on the willingness of companies and individual nations. And about all I can say is that we still don't have any agreement on that because now you're getting into sovereign rights and and what a country is willing to limit for itself. Looking forward, it's expected there will be increased activity in space from launching new communication constellations, greater human exploration, and space tourism. This heightens the chances of collisions. It's not going to be enough in the future to just hope nothing bad happens. We are going to have to take a more active role in limiting debris. And how will our moon fare once it's hit by that piece of debris? Chris says the moon will be okay, but the collision will result in a bunch of space debris around the surface and create a small impact crater. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.